audio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. My name is Mark Houston, and joining me today is Dr. Bhaskar Purushottam, an interventional cardiologist with the Monument Health Heart and Vascular Institute. Welcome to the podcast today, doctor. So happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for bet. the invitation. Happy to be here. Uh, now, we could this this in just my little bit of research I've been doing over the past couple of days. Uh, this is such a vast topic. Um, we've got the veins and the capillaries and the arteries, and my goodness, can they cause problems, <laughs> it <True>. seems, <laughs> occasionally. Um, but we want to talk about a couple of different topics uh, for this podcast specifically. I believe we'll break this up into two uh, because there is so much to cover. Um, one would be complex venous disease, and the other would be complex coronary disease. Correct. And I think when people hear the word venous disease, I, I, I don't think they understand what it means. So if we put this into the very simplest terms for, for people to kind of get a grasp of this right now would be varicose veins would be a great way to start with venous disease. Um, is that what you see is, is kind of one of the, the most common versions of this? You're absolutely right. And, 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 you know, circulation consists of arteries which carry blood from the heart to the feet. And venous system carries blood from the feet to the heart. And any abnormal dilatation of these where... Uh, the valves lose its competency, and that results in varicose veins. It's just like driving on a road without any traffic rules. Okay. Are those some of the, is that, is that probably one of the most common type of, of a complex venous disease that you see? Uh, I wouldn't really term it as complex, but yes, that is the most common presentation of uh, lower extremity venous disease. Uh, it is so common that by the age of 50, they expect that at least every second individual will probably have some form of venous disease. And varicosities is the most common presentation. Yeah. Is 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 it because of because of lifestyle when it comes to things like varicose veins, or or is it more genetic? You know, it's it's a combination of factors, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the reason is yes, you see that it tends to run in certain families, but also uh, it's a little more common in women. Also, uh, when you've had uh, you know uh, multiple children, that kind of puts a lot of pressure on your venous system. And also some other reasons which we don't know, which, which results in some changes in the enzymes of the vein wall, which starts to dilate and makes the valves incompetent. And also if you have a lifestyle and a job where you're standing and sitting along, uh, basically you know, gravity starts to pull all the blood down and make things worse. Sure. So uh, to answer your question, it's essentially a combination of factors. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, now that we kind of have a baseline for what a venous disease would be, Let's go. Let's talk a little bit about the complex venous disease. So, what are some examples of that, doctor? So, complex venous disease would be if uh, somebody develops a blood clot into the deep system, and that start to involve the iliac veins and the IVC. These are the large veins. Think of the highway up in your belly. Then uh, they start to become complex because they really swell up your legs. Uh, you can't do a whole lot. You start to develop ulcers. You can't ambulate a whole lot, and you're at higher risk of developing more clots. And that's when it starts to become complex. Other examples are if somebody had an IVC filter. So a filter is like an umbrella to prevent blood clots from going to the lungs. And when they get placed in the IVC, that is in the main highway or the venous system in the belly, over the years, it can get clogged up, one. 
Uh, in some conditions, it can start to poke through this vein wall and start to get in close proximity to the other organs, and that can be really, really dangerous. And these, you know, are, are something which we're seeing more often these days because these were filters placed several years ago, unfortunately forgotten, lost to follow-up, and I see a good number of them. Now, uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned the, the IVC, and maybe I can add a little, um, a little something personal to this podcast. Um, I have a stent in my IVC. Um, there was an, uh, a time, apparently, genetically, it didn't form all the way and it was small and it was caught by a doctor who said you know you probably should look at getting something like this fixed <laughs> because you know that like you mentioned that's yep. a that's a very important vein yes. in your body correct correct um and i also remember when it was checked i also had to do a test for clotting correct. uh can you talk a little bit about that and, and why those two kind of go hand in hand like you were mentioning with the clotting yeah so when when somebody develops a clot in one of the major veins then uh, you obviously have to think of some serious predisposing factor. Mm -hmm. and, and what you were describing, that a part of the vein was small in size, or what we call as atresia, uh, either you were born with it or you had an accident somewhere and that got damaged. And you may ask the question, so how was I doing okay all this while? What happens yeah. is you start to develop bypass tracks. And the next big thing which you pointed out is, uh, uh, you know, they check for uh, certain factors and tests to find out if you're higher risk for clotting, and, and that is possible. And therefore, you can run a whole bunch of tests, and some tests have to be done without the actual blood thinners. And then you can find out if a person has any factors or any genetic conditions which puts them at a higher risk of clotting. Now, it seems I'm, I'm fascinated that there can be testing for clotting. Because it seems like that's just something that, um, because can you really just briefly explain what a clot would be? What would happen when that moves into your yeah. lung or heart? So, you know, clotting is a normal defense mechanism of the human body. It's important. Oh. So, so if you cut yourself and if you didn't clot, mm -hmm. you would bleed out, right? So it's important. So, but if this is aggressive or if this is in parts of the body where it's not required because of some faulty mechanism, then that can form a clot, most commonly in the leg. And if not checked, that can progress. And with certain predisposing factors, can start to go up into the freeway, the main highway, and then eventually dislodge and go to your lungs. And in some conditions, can cause instantaneous death. What happens, how does, what, what happens in your lung when the clot is there? What is it, what is it blocking? So, good. What, the, the, the serious part of it which causes death it actually shuts off the blood flow to the lung. So usually, normally blood from the IVC or from the other parts of the vein, they go into the right side of the heart. From the right side of the heart, they go into the lungs. And then from the lungs, they go to the left side after they get the oxygen and then start to supply to the rest of the body. So when this clot in a decent size can go inside the right side of the heart and can block the entry into the lungs. So you'll get a mechanical circulatory collapse because there's no blood flowing to the left side and therefore you don't develop a blood pressure. And number two, you're not getting enough blood to the lungs to get oxygenated. So you develop from severe hypoxemia or low oxygen. So basically twofold. So can you have clots that happen throughout your body and you don't know? You, I, you can live with them in essence? Actually, it's important. And that's why I said the worst form is right. in essentially a circulatory and a, a respiratory collapse. But those who develop smaller form of clots, the lung has its own mechanism or inherent system of breaking these into finer, finer particles. And 
the truth be told, I think after a certain age, everybody does develop some fine clots in the legs, which do get uh, kind of, you know, for lack of right word, devoured, mm-hmm. you know, in the lungs. Uh, but when things start to overwhelm the lungs, is that's when it starts to become more serious and concerning. So what are some of the, the risk factors then that increase the likelihood of developing conditions like this in, yeah. your, in your complex venous disease? Are, are there things that we, that we can control? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, some of the biggest things is, for example, uh, you take a long-distance air travel or a long-distance car ride. You're sitting down. You're not doing anything for a good six hours or seven hours. Uh, if, uh, you know, if your BMI is high or if you're overweight, uh, you know, you're not hydrated, well, you, you know, your blood becomes thick, viscous, and stagnant. And remember, the venous system, the blood flowing is not as vigorous or as fast as it's in the arteries, okay? So when this happens, this is a perfect, you know, storm to develop a blood clot. And in some people, you can have mechanical obstruction, so which also adds to stasis, and therefore you can develop a clot. So I would say uh, in long-distance travels, take frequent breaks, keep yourself hydrated, and uh, getting those legs moving, you know, regular exercises is important. The other common scenario we see is when somebody's had a knee or a hip surgery. I'm just giving you as an example yes. because you can have multiple mm-hmm. surgeries. And, and usually in these conditions, if the patient's not very ambulatory, uh, then that's, again, a perfect uh, storm where uh, you lay still, You've had a recent surgery, which makes the blood a little bit hypercoagulable, and you're laying down stasis, and then obviously this forms the perfect nidus forming a clot. So when you were talking about travel, I know a lot of people, myself included, I don't know if this is embarrassing, will buy compression socks. Are those things that work? Is that can that can that help? It's still, probably best to get up and wander around. I'm assuming. I, I think it definitely helps. Sure, you know because it prevents the pooling of blood. Okay. Uh, but the compression stocks, uh, you know, sorry, the compression stockings is not strong enough to compress your complete deep system. Mm-hmm. You know because it has to squeeze through your, you know, your tissue, your skin, your muscle to squeeze the blood out from the deep system. So I think end of the day, staying <laughs> active, regular exercise, hydration is very very important. So when should you seek medical attention for, for symptoms? Or what are some pretty common symptoms for a, a, a venous disease, a complex venous disease like this? You know, the first time you start to feel what? Should you maybe think, yeah. hmm. So the complexity uh, doesn't have any specific telltale mm-hmm. symptoms. Very often, uh, the simple venous disease and the complex, they often present with very similar symptoms. But depending on how quickly they progress, depending on how resistant they are to treatment, uh, and depending on to what extent it's affecting your lifestyle, kind of differentiates between the complexity and the simple venous disease. So the standard symptoms are lower extremity swelling. Uh, Typically, as the day progresses, it gets worse. You wake up in the morning, it feels better because your legs have been elevated, and all the blood is liquid, so it flows away. Uh, you start to see skin changes. You start to see hyperpigmentation, darkening of the skin, sometimes lightening of the skin too. And this is because when the blood pulls down, blood contains hemoglobin, which then contains you know, iron in it. And mm-hmm. when the iron leaks out into the skin, that irritates the skin. And that's when you start to develop uh, recurrent infections, dermatitis-like appearance. And then eventually, uh, in worst-case scenario, you bump or you scrape your leg. You start to develop an ulcer. An ulcer is basically a breakage in the skin. And that wound will not heal because all the blood is stagnated there. It's not draining away the the bad stuff Mm -hmm. to let the healthy blood to come and clean it up. 
So you mentioned, um, you know, when you're sleeping at night and your legs are kind of elevated. Yep. Um, is that should, should more people do that when they sleep? Should they attempt to elevate your legs just so you feel better in the morning? Is, is, that, is, that, is that a way to, to maybe, um, I don't know, combat this a little bit? I think people who have, you know, superficial venous disease yeah. uh, or varicose veins, I think uh, sleeping with your uh, lower extremities elevated is good because it uh, decompresses the vein. So remember, the more pressure, the more stretching of the vein, the more the damage. Mm-hmm. And, and more aggressively the symptoms present. So I think it's a good habit to keep them elevated at night. And when you wake up and in the right kind of patients, it's good to use the compression stockings and then get along with the day. It, seem, it almost seems like we weren't meant to walk upright, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems that everything always rushing down and it takes so much to get it back. <laughs> especially with the venous disease, right. yes. You know, and then, because when I advise my patients, especially you know, if they're managing a hotel or if, if, if they're working in the garage. And if I tell them, don't stand for too long, don't sit for too long, they say, <laughs> you're basically asking me to quit work and keep me right. on the right <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's really tricky. And what I tell my patients is, uh, uh, you know, you have to see what suits your lifestyle mm-hmm. and kind of find that balance in between. You know, okay. I, I don't expect you to keep your legs up, 20 minutes, take a break. No, every now and then take frequent breaks. And each person is different. Right. So you have to find that, that that time before the window goes away. Like, oh, okay, it's now time for me to take a quick break. Then I get back onto it. Excellent. Uh, all right. Well, that's, uh, you know, we kind of touched there then on, on, on complex venous disease. Uh, and I think people kind of have now kind of an introductory uh, mm-hmm. knowledge to this. Um, let's move on to the next one, doctor, which is the complex coronary disease. Now, what's interesting right off the bat to me with this is we're using the word complex for both of these. So are these, these must be, by using that word, are we meaning the more serious of these Yeah. in essence? Yeah, I would say the best way to put this across is uh, uh, complexity is synonymous with increased risk of complications when performing any procedure to achieve success and the chance of success is lower when compared to the bread and butter form of the disease. That makes sense. So that would be a, okay. a simple way. Um, so a coronary, a complex coronary disease, uh, a lot of people might instantly think, oh, that's just a, that's just heart disease then, right? But they, they aren't the same thing, right? No, no, this is uh, different. I mean, uh, coronary artery disease is essentially the buildup of plaque, atherosclerotic plaque, which is cholesterol uh, and other inflammatory products inside the coronary artery. So the coronary artery sits outside the heart and mm-hmm. they supply the nutrition, the oxygen for the heart to pump and beat. Uh, so it is it is a common problem. In fact, coronary artery disease, the main reason uh, why we have uh, so much mortality around the world, it's the number one reason for that. Sure. Uh, whether it was pre-COVID, during COVID, or after COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes it complex is when patients have uh, you know, not just an 80-90% blockage, but they have a 100% blockage. You know, in that case, the artery is just living off bypasses. To try and open them to help with the patient's symptoms and survival, your risk of complication of the procedure is high, and the success rate is not really 100%. It can vary anywhere from 50 to 80%. The other form of complex coronary artery disease is when you have, you know, the heart's got three important arteries, mm-hmm. the right coronary, the left anterior descending, and the left circumflex. When all of them are blocked, you know, then basically the patient's living off very little blood flow. And usually these patients, we refer them to surgery. 
but not all patients, you know, uh, are good surgical candidates, meaning they may be at high risk for surgery. Yeah. Then they are referred to me, and that's when we perform these complex procedures. Uh, so these are some of the basic examples mm-hmm. of complex coronary. Well, what are what are the common risk factors then for developing complex coronary disease? And it's essentially the same as what you develop for coronary artery disease. You mm-hmm. know, I would say smoking, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. You know. Uh, sedentary, uh, and all these contribute. But when things are not taken care of at an earlier stage, when you start to neglect these symptoms, uh, or if you're not able to follow up with your physician on a regular basis, then the disease can progress pretty easily unchecked. Right. And then that leads to complexity. Well, that would lead in uh, to the next obvious question, then. How do, you, how do you know when it comes to symptoms like this? How, how do you know... To differentiate, or, or if you feel them, should you just should you automatically just get on the phone with your doctor and say, "Let's check this out." I think that's your perfect answer. Yeah, yeah. if you feel something doesn't smell right, mm-hmm. something doesn't look right, then definitely pay attention to it. And and, and often I've seen the analogy like uh, when when I have patients uh, in the sixties and seventies, they say, "Oh, I'm just getting old, and maybe that's why I'm not able to walk." Or 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 even sometimes I've seen some fifty year olds say, "Oh, I've had a rough day." Yeah, if it occurs on a regular basis and that doesn't make sense, you know, you should be able to stay pretty active, climb easily a couple of flights of stairs as long as you don't have any other orthopedic impediments. Uh, and if you're not able to do so, I think it's important to question why. And, and yes, there are a lot of issues which can make a person not be active, but we know the most common is cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And we know that is the number one killer. So therefore, it just seems pretty obvious for me that we need to rule the serious one out, you know. And and I think you're absolutely right. I think you just have to pick up the phone, call the doctor, and say, "Hey, I don't know. This doesn't feel right." Right. And then I can start asking questions. Hey, what triggers this? What triggers that? And then there are plenty of non-invasive, meaning you know, uh, non-interventional procedures which can try and identify this disease at an earlier stage. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of people, of course, are on statins for mm-hmm. things like high cholesterol, and yep. you have high blood pressure medication as well. Um, do you ever see a time, doctor, uh, with, with all of your time in dealing with, with this system, with the heart, uh, do you ever think there will be a time with new technologies that uh, are constantly rolling out that uh, we might fix a lot of this stuff? I mean, the heart seems to be outside of the brain, the most complicated, but simple, in some instances, part of your True. body, right? Do you think we'll ever reach a point where we'll, we, we might be able to just to, to fix a lot of this, um, either with, with medications that keep getting better and better, it seems like, with specific surgeries, with artificial? You know, artificial hearts have been around mm-hmm. for decades and decades and decades. Never seem to quite get it right, obviously. But do you think that that's nearing? Uh, definitely. I think if you look in the entire field of medicine, and if you look at some of the uh, uh, most uh, high-impact journals are most read or most mm-hmm. respected, the two fields, one is cardiovascular medicine and the other one's oncology, where you see a lot of research being done. And, and also, we've seen that when statins came, it reduced the number of heart attacks tremendously. Right. And, and now there are a lot more improved treatments to even control cholesterol. There's, we've gone at least two folds higher than the regular statin therapy. So there's a lot more options available for patients who cannot tolerate statins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the, the artificial heart, you know. Uh, that's been tricky, and, and, and one of the reasons is also the cost. You know? Right, yeah, And that course. plays a big role. Uh, 
But I think uh, the other, uh, you know, missing uh, uh, the elephant in the room is uh, prevention. Yeah. I think uh, we need to pay a lot more attention. I think we need to start educating our kids at an earlier age, you know, uh, from eating healthy, you know, because uh, if you can catch this earlier on and treat it early, then you don't have to, you know, come to a stage where you're dealing with all these uh, aggressive procedures. Right. Because uh, I hate to say it, but mm-hmm. yes, a lot of the procedures we do are life-saving, but we're not able to find that procedure where we can actually reverse the disease. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And, and medicines don't reverse it, but more so they kind of halt the progression of the disease. Yeah. And probably I think best ways to reverse it or prevent it from getting worse is a healthy lifestyle. And and unfortunately, this plaque, it starts at an earlier age, at the age of 20s and 25s, and it starts to modulate, change, and eventually, you know, shows its evil face, <laughs> sometimes 40s, sometimes, you know, right. 50s. But definitely after 60, it starts to pick up. Excellent. And, uh, well, and one other point, sorry, I don't mean Yes, to no, please. Is, so artificial intelligence is something which is big and slowly picking up. And in the field of medicine, and, and they're trying to use this to find out so many different things which can be identified. For example, looking at some person's eyes, assessing skins and genetic data, are we able to predict uh, with certain factors, you know, what truly is your risk of heart disease? Yes, we have a lot of uh, clinical prediction models, but with AI, are we able to even beat that? So you must be excited for AI then. Is it, is it something? I mean, I know it's still in its infancy. It is. Really. And I think there's a lot of controversy. Right. Right. Should it be regulated? But for me as a physician, when I see patients and, you know, uh, and every physician has experienced this, that, you know, we predict something and it doesn't go right. And, and we see this patient in the hospital with a heart attack. And I said, oh, what, what did I do? You know, we mm-hmm. took care of everything. And, and that's where it tells you that, you know, human body is God's creation or evolution's miracle. And we don't know a lot of it. You know? right. It's like when you have a phone, you, you designed it, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. But the human body is different. So there's a lot more to learn about it. And, and I think um, you know, with AI tool, I'm sure it'll really, really help. So I am truly excited about it. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and I can tell your eyes kind of light up when you talk about it a little bit, too. <laughs> People can see that for sure. Uh, uh, well, Dr. Purushottam, thank you very much. Uh, interventional cardiologist with Monument Health Heart and Vascular Institute right here in Rapid City. Great conversation. Love talking with you, doctor. Thank you. And I know we'll have you back again. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Home Slice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquis, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.